Hello, this is Raki on the Sustainable Founders Podcast. Today I have Cressy Westling, CBE, co-founder of Elvis and Cressy, a luxury bag accessories brand crafting items from reclaimed material, notably London's decommissioned fire hoses. So welcome, Cressy. Do tell me about your brand, your products, and why you believe you are a sustainable company. Sure. Well, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. It's really nice to be here. I suppose that there's always a couple of stories when you're talking about where a brand came from and there's, there's, you know, short and long version, but for, for us, really the journey began in around 2004. I just moved to the UK and I was totally obsessed with waste. I spent a lot of time in landfill sites and waste treatment centers. And I was trying to work out what I was going to do next. And I discovered a fire hose and I thought, wow, this is pretty beautiful. And I contacted London Fire Brigade and they invited me to Croydon, which is where all hoses in London go to die. And when I got there, I saw this beautiful stack of red hoses coiled up on the rooftop. And I thought how terrible it would be for them to go to landfill because I could understand why they couldn't be hoses anymore. That made perfect sense. They were too damaged to use, too damaged to repair, or they'd reached the end of their health and safety life. But that didn't mean they couldn't be something else. And rather than ever having a thought that we were starting a company or starting a brand, we simply started rescuing fire hoses. And that launched a whole other research project into nitrile rubber, into who made hoses, into what could be done with them, what was the next best possible second life. And when we discovered that certain French luxury brands have been using similar material in their collections for a very long time, we thought, oh, great we can make luxury goods. And that essentially meant more research, more skills acquisition, and over the years, building up from belts to a full range of luxury goods. And we started with just fire hose, but now we collect 15 different materials. And I suppose if you want to kind of sum us up, we do three things. We rescue materials that would otherwise be learned though. We transform them into beautiful things. And then we donate 50% of the profits to charity because... For me, if we're going to have a circular economy, capital has to be circular too. Wow, that's incredible. So from concept, this is, you're on like 20 years going now. and uh, Yeah, just about. <laughs> so I think, yeah. Yeah. And, and like, so obviously you've been doing this before it was wide stream and mainstream to kind of be upcircling or to talk about sustainability. What, what was it that kind of got you interested in this area? You talk about sort of being curious about it anyway. I'm just intrigued about where your awareness came from and what your drivers were in the first place. What made you care about something that just wasn't, didn't have a lot of noise behind it at the time? I think that, that you could then go, you know, really far back. I grew up in Western Canada. I spent a lot of time camping with my family as a kid and absolutely loved the wilderness. And when I was 16 years old, I got a scholarship to finish high school in Hong Kong. So I went from Western Canada to a pretty urban <laughs> landscape for me. And I had, I, I basically came into contact for the first time with real consumer culture and with waste and with the untreated sewage of 7 million people going directly into the sea. And, and, and I had that same kind of backstory that a lot of people would have of having read Silent Spring or, you know, been to a sewage treatment plant. But then when you're confronted with, you know, moving from one country to another and, and one is, I hate Canada's not green but it was visibly green, whereas Hong Kong it is just not green. <laughs> so so I, I, I was transplanted into that place and I think it really turned me into an environmentalist pretty much overnight. 
And once you are awake, I don't know how you can go back to sleep. And I guess this is my biggest confusion with climate change. You know, we've had the science since 1992, definitively, and most people are awake to that. And yet the behavior has not changed. So I'm one of these people who woke up and then decided not to go back to sleep. And I decided that very early on in, in my life. And, and that's why why we are. Wow, I love that. Um, I love this idea of waking up and then staying awake. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember I was traveling once and we did this trek. I was in Southeast Asia. I think I was in Bali and we did this insane trek to the top of a volcano. And I remember looking out on the vista and it was like you were the only, we were on top of the world and you feel like you're the only ones there. And then you look down and it was just covered in like water bottles and rubbish. And mm. I remember having that same feeling of like sort of one minute you're the only one there. And then you had this really visible rubbish there. And it just opened my eyes as well, because I suppose in the Western world, we'd very much, our rubbish is taken away and we don't have visibility of it. And it's a real privilege in a way, but it kind of almost encourages us to just deny its existence and deny its journey. And we just think like, okay, once it's out of sight, it's out of mind and it's someone else's problem. And it's only recently that this has been, you know, kind of the light has been shed on that. So it's really interesting that your journey there and your awareness there came so earlier. And yeah, it's it's interesting. Why have politicians and world leaders not done more about this? Knowing the science and the facts and maybe there's just something in the human nature to deny or to think that something's not a priority until your your land is flooded and your trees are all on you know your forests are on fire even in the face of that some some people are still are still completely willfully blind i mean lord frost said on the news today that climate change was just going to make things better in the uk because we had more people dying of cold than we did of heat which a, makes me think that he completely doesn't understand the science because that's not how climate change works. But also just the fact that he would say something like that out loud and 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 not have, not be immediately chastised by pretty much everyone in his part. You know, I, I find that just so confusing, super confusing. Yeah, and it's also a case of, um, you know, our history has been as a colder climate. So why would people be dying of heat? So it's it's just... A hugely <laughs> a ridiculous thing to say, really. Yeah. And these are the people that are running our countries. So, and I think there's also, yeah, our, our time and mix on. <laughs> we could talk about that kind of silliness all day, but it doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah. But it also, yes, exactly. And it also, the second part of that is the power that individuals have. I read somewhere that every time we make a purchase, we're casting a vote for our future. To me, like as shoppers, as consumers, we have control and we we have power to where we put our money and put our spend and what we encourage and what we discourage in societies through that. So I think, you know, we we can't, we shouldn't pretend that we don't have any control and we just buy what's available. Okay, maybe sometimes that's true, but most of the time, actually, we have accessibility to buying better. It takes me to sort of the next point about your certification. So you are certified social enterprise, you're certified B Corp, and you're certified for a living wage. Can you talk to me about why you chose these certifications and what they have to do with sustainability? Well, actually, none of them are particularly 
the sustainability driven. We have always been a social enterprise from day one. You know, a, a social enterprise in the UK is defined as an organization that exists to solve social and environmental problems and redistributes 50% of its profits. And we do that. So by definition, we are a social enterprise. We were one of the founding UK B Corps. And the reason we joined that movement and really wanted to help to elevate it and get it going in the UK was because not all businesses could be social enterprises because there's 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 not a majority of businesses that are willing to redistribute 50% of their profits. That's kind of a big commitment. So we thought the B Corp movement was quite exciting, particularly because it tackles the concept of shareholder primacy. So the reason we're in the mess that we're in is because some crazy people from Chicago started talking about, you know, free markets a long time ago. And the market was never free. It was always paid for by the planet and paid for by people who have been exploited in whichever geography they've been in at that particular time. And because the market was never free, but we had this perception of it being free, we thought that we could just leave it to to markets to sort things out. But they haven't. They've actually made everything significantly worse. And that's because the managers of companies have to, by law, maximize shareholder profit. That's what they're there to do. And Elvis and I have never thought that made sense. Because if you're maximizing shareholder profit at the expense of the planet and its people, that should be illegal. What Shell has been doing for quite a long time now should be illegal. What fast fashion brands are doing with modern slavery should be illegal. The clothing that arrives in the UK, which we know has come through organizations where there is rampant modern slavery, should be seized just like a shipment of cocaine would be seized. And we don't do that because we still have this weird view that markets are, are free and fair and just not. So the B Corp movement basically means that one of the main tenets is that you have to change the constitution of your business to say that shareholders are not kings, the planet and people are at least as important share as shareholders. So you have to take those two things into consideration. And there's some B Corps like Patagonia that have become nature-based businesses and certainly for us, we, we take the idea of being net regenerative for the, for the planet very, very seriously. Like it's, it dictates pretty much all of our actions. We take the idea that, that our decisions should, should make the world better for other people's grandchildren. You know, we take these things really seriously. And given that Elvis and I are the only shareholders in the business and that we don't have people hounding us every four months for some sort of idea of what the revenue is and what the turnover is and what the profitability is, we can be pretty bold about the claims that we make because that's the, the future we've decided that we want and that's the way we're going to behave. So I do, I do love the B Corp movement. And then living wage just makes sense. I don't understand how it's legal to pay people less than a living wage. How is that possible? Seems completely, completely insane. In the same way that I think you have to pay for Pay for your water, pay for your sewage treatment, pay for the quality of air, pay people who are in your supply chain, pay. If we paid for everything, we would be fine. It's just that we have these externalities that we don't pay for. And that's the problem with capitalism and greed and selfishness and all of it stinks. And that's, that's not how we choose to run a business. And that's not how we choose to celebrate being human beings, <laughs> I guess. You've touched upon so many interesting points there, Chrissy. And, you know, I love hearing that. I love hearing when other people say things that are also going through my mind because it makes me feel like 
less lonely. It makes me feel like I'm less alone in this thought process. Firstly, you, you kind of, you know, this idea that we possess or sort of take these clothes from fast fashion brands that haven't met basic legal requirements and we treat them like we would narcotics and drugs that haven't paid their fair taxes. I mean, it's so radical and I've never thought of that, but what, a, what an incredible idea. <laughs> But it, it also shows how complex certainly fashion is because what's legal in some countries is not sort of the basic standard of legal in others. And I've always been uncomfortable with that where we we kind of ship out certain manufacturing to countries that have less regulated or sort of legal requirements around labour and sort of the planet and the environment and sort of, you know, the sort of pollution element of things. And, you know, when companies deliberately and intentionally go to seek out low prices, they really will be aware that there's a reason why these prices are so low, because you're either exploiting people, planet or animals. I love it when people also recognise that a low price isn't something to get really excited about. It's a sign that there's exploitation in your chain. And I think we're so accustomed to paying low prices that paying a real price for product can seem really extravagant and you sort of think like oh that's that's like an incredibly high price but actually that's a price when you know that's a price you're paying when there's the exploitation isn't there in the supply chain yeah certainly for for me i mean we get calls all the time by companies who say oh we would really like to for you to make us this many key rings and can't you do a better price and and i say no for that price you're going to have to go to a manufacturer that has absolutely no standards whatsoever so if you want to buy an exploitative extractive product, then that's that's totally up to you. Yeah, you almost... and that, that might sound harsh, but I, I really stopped caring quite some time ago. If people are asking what I asking me what a price should be, I will tell them because there is definitely a floor. And when somebody wants something that is made and stitched, cut and sewn for less than two pounds, it is exploitation. It is extraction. There is no other way to describe it. It's appalling. And we don't use that word enough. Appalling is a beautiful word. Exactly. And it's also this idea that shareholders are sort of, you know, they're, they're first in the sort of ranking and then people, planet and animal will come after that. And I think challenging this way of this sort of way of free markets and sort of normalized the way that this has been normalized is definitely correct as we start to recognize and just accept that actually this exploitation is it shouldn't be the standard and shouldn't be the normal. Okay, so you sort of say that your certifications are not sort of, you know, none of them are about sustainability. If there was a certification for sustainability, what, what do you think that would look like? What do you think it should be covering? I mean, there certainly are. There's one that we're looking into cradle to cradle. We think it's quite interesting. What we do on our farm is, you know, we practice re regenerative agriculture and there isn't a certification for that yet. There's some people in the U.S. that are working on that. And I quite like the idea of getting getting there and, and maybe being a part of developing something like that. But in a lot of cases, there are certification regimes out there that that I feel would let would let us down. So, for example, there is a sustainable lines one. And, and, and I've looked at what they're asking for, and I don't think it's anywhere near enough we would sail through a certification scheme like that. But then I think we would we would make other actors look better than they are just by being there. So so that one just wouldn't work for us. I don't I don't know. I think third party certifications are incredibly important because 
not everybody has been to the farm. Not everybody has met us. Not everyone has seen what we do. We are an incredibly transparent company. Anyone can come here at any time and see everything. There isn't a room you're not allowed in. There isn't a material you're not allowed to see. There isn't a person you're not allowed to talk to. And that, and we make all our own products. So it's, it's fairly open, but not everybody has the opportunity to experience that. And that's why the certifications are important. But they're also important because we do want this to be about more than just businesses like ours, more than just us. This has to be about a wider impact. This has to be about broad economic change. If companies didn't decide to work together, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to think of things like the Better Business Act or whole cities adopting donut economics or whole mass movements around collaboration for the circular economy and, and, and if we want those things to happen, then I think that certification readings certainly have a role to play. And I think from a consumer perspective as well, it's so hard to navigate who to believe, who not to believe. So having, and to your point earlier, that there is no minimum standard that a garment needs to be to be sold in the UK. Well, sorry, there are, um, but certainly not from a sustainability. I can see the value there. Because there are brands where we absolutely know 100% that there is modern slavery in that supply chain. And they're still importing goods to the UK. Knowingly, everybody, every, it, it's just everybody knows it's happening. And I'll be interested to see what's going to shake out of the new European laws around greenwashing and if brands are actually going to be held to account. And, and by held to account, I genuinely mean shut down. I mean big fines. I mean retrospective fines. And I mean closures seizure of goods, that kind of thing. I, I think it's too much to ask for this to be all about consumer choice. So I believe exactly like you do, that we are making a choice every time we spend or don't spend money. But at the same time, we do actually, at this point in this story of human civilization, need actual regulation. So I don't see why it would be so difficult to just enforce the laws that we have. Because we're not talking here about some countries where it might be cheaper to manufacture something. We're just talking about basic humanity. We're talking about whether or not you should buy something from a supply chain where you wouldn't be happy for your grandchildren to work. And that's how people have to see it. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. If you wouldn't work there, then don't wish that upon somebody else as mm. their work condition. You talked about your farm can you explain more about this? What is your farm? Is this sort of about the, your sort of workshop in Kent? Tell me about this. Well, we, we've always been on the edge, I would say. We're always pushing a boundary. And I don't know, I think there's a, there's a song still crazy after all these years. <laughs> and we decided quite a few years ago that we wanted to be net regenerative, but there's no hard and fast definitions of what that means. For us, it meant taking charge of a failed landscape and seeing how much we could bring it back to life and how much biodiversity we could add and, and what we could do there that would be a real adventure. So we started looking for farms and we, it took us ages to find one. And we finally found this one in December. Well, we found it in, in the summer of 2020, but we were only able to buy it in December of 2020. And then we discovered it was in an area of outstanding natural beauty and that that had big planning implications. So it took us eight months to get planning permission to do all the wild things that we've done. But that's all now complete. So we, we built a workshop out of straw bales. It's highly insulated, near passive design, runs on a heat pump powered by solar and batteries. So we're fossil fuel free. 
at the moment and for the last several months we've been exporting more power than we've been using so that helps with the net regenerative idea and we built our own waste treatment system which is a wetland based system so instead of sewage being a problem instead of being something that that gets put into our rivers is something that we treat here as a resource the solid waste is treated by worms and becomes vermicast, which is sort of like solid gold on a farm. And the liquid waste runs through a series of swales, which feeds thousands and thousands of plants and insects and, and is transformed into bathing quality water. So we see it as a resource and as a hotspot for biodiversity rather than a problem. And we've done a lot of things like that here. We also did sort of baseline soil studies and we had extreme, we knew this was grade three debated pasture part of the attraction for us for it because we want to see how much we can increase the organic content in the soil, how much we can increase the potential for it to hold water and hold carbon and the potential for it to create good quality, well-paid jobs in the countryside. So how can 17 acres do that? And I think they can only do that if you apply a lot of love and a lot of genuine creativity and time and patience. And last year was tough because we planted the winter before we planted 3,000 trees and 12,000 vines. And then we had the worst drought since 1976. So it was trial by fire, I guess, for us. But it's coming together and it's certainly an incredibly inspirational place to be, you know, every morning we wake up to the sound of the dawn chorus of the birds. And that's because we don't spray anything. We've got a lot of insect life. So we've got a lot of bird life. It's just a powerful reminder of how you can live in nature, with nature, for nature, while also running business, while also being economically active. For a long time, people had thought they had to make sacrifices and compromises. And the compromises were always people and planet, were always someone else, somewhere else for the earth. And we want to show that it's, that you don't have to do that. And all you have to do in order to not do that is actually just use your brain and turn on your soul a little bit. Allow your heart to beat wildly and quickly and passionately. Anyway, that's probably a lot for (laughs) an answer. No, not at all. And I think this idea of regeneration and the the morning chorus of the birds is is beautiful. I remember once when I was traveling, I was staying in an eco lodge and the sound of nature at night was so loud. I couldn't sleep. And I realized my idea of normal, having grown up and having lived in London, was just, you know, was just so far from nature. And that just the sound of nature, that's how it should be. It should be this loud. It should be thriving. It should be that, you know, it should have that ownership. And I remember sort of being quite awed by it. And the first few nights I found it really unsettling because it was just hugely loud. And then after that, I adjusted and I found it really comforting. And it was, yeah, it really was a thing of beauty. Now, of course, you guys are a business as well. So you do need to sell products. You need revenue and income. But I noticed that you don't do sales or Black Friday. Talk to me about your business model um, and sort of why you avoid um, these things. Well, the business model was always, I suppose, very careful. You know, we see that you have to be fiscally disciplined. You have to be good at managing a spreadsheet. You have to sell things for more than they cost you to manufacture. You have to sell things for an amount that allows you to pay everyone well, keep the lights on, pay your credit card fees. What people don't realize when you buy things online is that the company selling it has to pay credit card company quite a lot for doing very little. So there's there's all of that. And as long as you're disciplined with 
with that and you've got a spreadsheet running, that's fine. That's the baseline. So we've always been extremely disciplined when it comes to that. But that's all that is. The, the money side has never been a goal. It's never been even particularly interesting, which is why I find it bizarre when, we, when they are constantly talking on the news about GDP or big companies' revenue and turnover and profit and stuff like that. I find it all very dull. What are they actually doing? What are they actually contributing to society? Whose life is better as a result of this? Or whose life is worse? We have celebrated for a long time completely the wrong things. So, so money is not the interesting thing about our business. It's just a discipline. It runs in the background and we manage it. The interesting things about us are the materials that we rescue, the craftsmanship that we deploy to transform them, and the communities that we've built around around everything that we do. So 50% of the profits from the Firehose Range goes to the Firefighters Charity. 50% of the profits from our rescue leather goes to Barefoot College, where we create scholarships for women to train as solar engineers. And those are the things that are interesting and exciting about what we do, because it means that the byproduct of us as a business is goodness. The byproduct of us as a business is a straw bale workshop that runs on renewable energy. The byproduct of us as a business is uh, farmland that will no longer be grade three degraded pasture. It'll be the best, most productive farmland in Kent with the highest biodiversity count per square foot. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we're after. And those things are worth celebrating. And they're not easy. They're not easy. So in terms of pricing, because I think it's it's so interesting because also as a company, we don't run sales either. And I think there's a few reasons we avoid that um, because, and I think it resonated. I think you've got a few things on your website about this and it really resonated with me is that you're not fast moving. So you don't have that worry of, okay, this trend is going to be over. So we need to quickly get rid of the stock because you're creating timeless products that are built to sort of, out sort of outlast these kind of short-term trends. You're part of that slow fashion movement. Also, like I recognize that you said you believe in everyday value, not just a few days a year. You know, so you do these crazy prices for a few days and then the rest of the time, how how is that viewed that you're and working in small batches probably means you don't have this, you know, you're not sitting on a huge amount of stock. And it just allowed you to behave differently and hold yourself to higher standards. And I just thought that was really beautiful because we also, we don't run sales. We don't want to force people to buying something. I think that was the other thing. I think when there's a sale, people think, oh, let me quickly grab that or snap it up because I, it won't come round again. And we didn't want to encourage that kind of urgent consumer behavior. And I know that on some fashion websites, you go there and they give you a price, but it's only valid for 15 minutes. So quickly snap up this deal for 15 minutes and then otherwise you're going to pay something higher. And this kind of pressurized selling, you know, and they're very clever. They're very clever to tap into kind of some part of the brain that sort of suggests urgency and this absolute need that you've got to have it now and you've got to buy it quickly because it's a brilliant price. And I think um, sometimes I often feel that our brands and marketeers, they're too good. And wouldn't it be great if they were on the side of the planet and the people instead of on the side of kind of the shareholders? Um, it often makes me sad because I think, gosh, they, they really have some insight into the brain and what makes us shop. Yeah, I, I, I certainly there are things that we've been told by marketeers over the years that we have to inject a sense of urgency. We have to have this kind of boom and bust pricing. And 
And I'm like, do we have to though? Like, I get that it's what's done, but it doesn't mean that we have to do it. We don't have to do seasons either because I think it's wildly inappropriate for someone to expect to wear a belt for the spring of 2014 and not still be wearing it for the winter of 2022. It's just completely obnoxious. And the same goes with a tote bag. We should be making things to last. We should be making things that can be repaired. We should care that they last longer than a season. And and our whole churn is trying trying to avoid that. And it's not just with fashion, it's with food. You know, we've been, especially with the farm, we've been researching a lot about ultra high processed foods and how they actually impact your brain to make you not feel full, to make you feel like you need another immediate hit. And all they do is decrease health outcomes on a wide scale across all of society. And again, if we had a government that, I want to say something that I totally shouldn't, but if we had a government that genuinely understood science, which I, there are some people who do for sure, but if there was people who were willing to act on it and have a little bit of courage, just a tiny bit of courage, then we wouldn't have foods like that. So maybe we, we could have a completely different future if we didn't allow ultra high processed foods, if we didn't allow exploitative extractive fashion, if we didn't allow non-renewable energy companies to run roughshod over over the environment and still be subsidizing things like jet fuel. You know, we just got all of our incentives completely wrong. And 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 yeah, discounts for fashion is another one of those incentives that I think is completely wrong. So even though a marketeer would tell me I had to do that, my answer would always be no. One of the reasons we don't sell in department stores is because they demand newness. They want a new season. They want a new color. We did a pop-up in Carrots and their buyers were like, oh my God, this is great, but we need black. And I was like, fire hose is red. And they're like, what about tartan? It's definitely like, even if they decided to make tartan fire hose tomorrow, we wouldn't get it for 20 years. <laughs> I'd love to see that tartan fire hose though. But it just, <laughs> just the most bizarre requests. Again, by, I think, people who are half asleep. Yeah, bizarre, completely bizarre. So the rules that we think are dysfunctional, we don't play by. And how liberating is that? It's amazing. It feels great. I love that. I love that. You you really kind of have that awareness of what's working and what's not. And I wish more people understood that. And I hope listening to this podcast can help them to understand it. Now, obviously, um, you talked about um, giving 50% of your profits back to charity. You've contributed over 300,000 since your launch to charitable causes. Uh, And you're also a CBE. Tell me more about this. Well, the charitable donations just make sense. It it just does. We're taught as little kids to share. And then the rest of our education seems to be about making us greedy hoarders, which just doesn't make sense. So I've stuck with the kindergarten philosophy and... Frankly, it feels good. It just feels great. And we, we, we have the same idea when it comes to paying taxes. You know, when, when, when our accountant says, this is what you owe the government, we are like, woohoo. We pretend all of it's spent on early childhood development and teachers and nurses and doctors and improved public services. And we celebrate because we need a society in order to function and we need to pay for that. If we want to live in a wonderful world where everybody has great and fantastic opportunities, that needs to be paid for. And it doesn't get paid for if everyone just focuses on themselves. 
And if everyone just focuses on producing value for themselves and for the small group of people around them, which is, it sort of leads us back to this decision-making philosophy we have about everything we do has to make the world better for other people's grandchildren. So it has to be long-term thinking and it has to be not self. Those are the, those are the two key points of that. So we've done that for forever. And I also guess I've done a lot of, I've been on a lot of government panels. I've been a, a social enterprise ambassador. I've been on panels about sustainable manufacturing and getting women onto boards and all of these things. And I guess for that, someone at one point put me forward for a, an MBE. And I, it was hysterical when someone called me in about, I think, 2012 and said, you know, you've been, we'd like to give you an MBE. Would you accept it? And I was like, well, I'll have to call you back. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I called Elvis and, and who wasn't in the workshop at the time when I said, so what's an MBE and should I accept it? And he said, well, if you don't accept it, my mother will never speak to you again. So I was very lucky and, and I got to meet the queen who was really delightful, really delightful, actually, and made me cry because she was so generous with her compliments and her time, I thought, and her understanding of what we were trying to do, her genuine understanding of why we were doing this. And then we kept going. And I think that's the thing is that a business like ours, a lot of a lot of people never thought it would last and maybe we didn't think it would last. And that's why we're even bolder and braver and why we've taken on the farm and why as bad as things are with forest fires and with climate change, we will keep pushing and we will keep pressing. And because we stayed alive, I guess I got upgraded to the CME. I don't know. And again, that was an extremely, it, it, it was just lovely. It was really a lovely experience and, and you know, and who knows, but we're not giving up. We're not getting up on this mission. Wonderful. Listen, thank you so much for your time today, Cressy. It's been brilliant to just hear you speak and to share your values and your principles with us. I love your humanity. I love your big, generous heart because you can see that that's the driver of all that you are doing with your brand. Uh, so yeah, of course, please don't ever stop. Thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you. Thanks, Matt.